The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, welcome to the podcast. How are you, everyone? Oh, we've got an interesting show for you today. This is the first of three parts. We're more on the history side than the literature side today, giving us some context for what's coming next. We're going to talk about two great American writers, James Baldwin, a black American from the North, born in Harlem, gay, way ahead of his time in many ways, a brilliant novelist, and maybe the greatest American essayist of the 20th century. We're going to hear one of those essays today. He's kind of a throwback to Emerson and Thoreau and those 19th century writers who could go on the lecture circuit. Baldwin wrote his novels and short stories, and they're great, but he was also a critic, also gave speeches and talks. He was on television. He engaged in debates. He was part of the conversation. He's such a gifted and talented writer. His thinking is very deep and very clear. Our other great American writer, and he is great too, is William Faulkner. Oddly, I feel like I need to defend him a little bit today, even though he's much more famous and successful than Baldwin was. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, for example. He's still beloved. He's a lot of people's favorite author. He's the giant of the South, a pioneer, an artist, a legend. He was gifted as well. Stories and novels just poured out of him. And he was one of America's most European novelists in the sense of high art or modernism. That's helped make him a giant figure in the history of literature. His books are like this blend of formal innovation you might expect out of Paris or London or Prague or New York City. And he's got all that going on within the context of a mythical county in Mississippi. He's like a modernist who chose Hicks as his subject. Hicks and blacks. Maybe Hicks isn't the right word. Poor families, let's say. Country. Old and tattered aristocrats, Civil War veterans, former slaves, all of them broken and weird and desperate and scrambling for survival. Faulkner's a novelist with a capital N. There's no denying it. And yet, I'm defending him a little bit already in advance because later in this episode, he's not going to look great. Frankly, he was on the wrong side of history. I don't think we can deny that. And he took all that upon himself. He entered the debate, and he doesn't come out all that well in retrospect, which is not to cast aside all his books and say they're without merit. It's to set up some context for what we make of those books and of the author who wrote them. We're not reading to worship at anyone's shrine. We're reading to engage with those minds and see where we ourselves stand, what moves us and why, what bores us and why, what teaches us and why, what makes us angry and why. Those are the questions for us. We don't just say, he's great, so shut up, just admire him. We say he's great, but in what ways? We read him, but what do we get out of it? What is good here? What's not good? 
Where does that leave us? So here's what we have in store. First, I'm going to set up the context of Baldwin and Faulkner around 1950 or so as the civil rights movement is starting to take hold in the South. This is the era where black Americans came home from World War II and looked around and said, hang on, we fought in this war for America. We were in Europe. We saw how things were in Paris. And we see how things are in the South, where we're treated like secondhand citizens, where we can't go into the same restaurants as whites. We can't swim in the same pools, where we can't drink from the same water fountain. We are mistreated in the courtrooms and at the hands of the police and in the voting booth. I don't need to make this argument. It's the Jim Crow era. Enough said. Lynchings. An ugly period for America. And Faulkner, the hero, the grand man of Southern letters, wades right in. He had some thoughts, and people criticized them. That will be our subject today. Faulkner's statements and Baldwin's response in a majestic essay called Faulkner and Desegregation. We're including it to give you a sense of the quality of Baldwin's writing. It's a wonderful essay. But we're also including it to give you a framework for reading Faulkner, for understanding his works, for fitting them into history. So before I begin, let me say a few words about this as a topic for a show. I know it's not some people's favorite. I got a review the other day that said, quote, please stop preaching about race relations. Don't preach to the choir, end quote. I get that. I get it. This audience probably doesn't need to hear it. This audience probably is the choir. Most of them. Review went on, quote, you are not one voice in the wilderness, end quote. I get that too. I'm not a hero, I'm not a savior, I'm not, I'm not trying to be. And sometimes, taking on subjects like racism, race, racial justice, climate change, whatever, it can feel a little tiresome. Who am I? Who am I? To, who's this guy talking about? I get it. I'm not in the mood for that either all the time. And a preachy, holier-than-thou attitude is irksome. I hear you. If that's what I was doing, I wouldn't do it. If the point of all this was to say, hey, here's a little racist phrase here. Here's a little racism over there. Look at this, everyone. I wouldn't bother. Ed, leave your politics out of what is otherwise a wonderful discussion of literature, is how the review concludes. Hmm. Hmm. I'm still with you to a point. Hold that thought. Review concludes, Trump bad, Obama good. What? End quote. Okay. I get it. I've stepped on some toes. My apologies for that. Everyone is welcome here. It's a Big Tent podcast. Literature transcends. Politics is out of place when it's dragged in like a dead cat. But, 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 here we are talking about William Faulkner, talking about James Baldwin. Race mattered. It mattered to these guys, for better or worse. How do you not talk about it? How do we know how to read them if we can't consider race? And that means the history, for better or worse, and the individuals, for better or worse, and the works themselves. You can read those books however you want. There's no one right way. I'm telling you how I read them. 
what I take from them. I'm telling you why I don't just dismiss them out of hand. Like I said, I hate the little game of, oh, here's a word, here's a phrase. See? Gotcha. Gotcha, William Faulkner. Racist. Gotcha. I'm not looking for little ways to invalidate or reveal or cancel. This stuff is too big for that. This stuff matters too much to me. But because it matters, I'm not willing to just ignore a great central theme either. (laughs) I don't want to read this half blind. Not every writer has to write about everything. We don't talk about these issues when we read Alice Munro, for example. Not much. But these are worthwhile questions in my book. Is Faulkner telling us something useful? Or does he have blind spots? Is criticism of him fair? Why? I can't read him without pursuing this kind of inquiry. I will be as fair to him as I can. But it seems like there's no point in being a partial reader. Right? Love, hate, sex, greed, religion, angst, doubt, envy, fear, frustration. That's literature. Prejudice. Add that too. This is the stuff of literature. Ignoring it isn't fair to literature or to life or to either of these authors. So instead of saying, don't talk about it, think about why you agree or disagree with these authors. Have an opinion. I might not have an opinion about your opinion. That's how this works, by the way. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's the only way it could work. I'm free to have an opinion. You're free to listen if you choose to. And you're free to express your own opinion about my opinion, if you'd like. But I'm not obligated to have an opinion about your opinion of my opinion. Okay? (laughs) I just don't have to. I just don't have to. Okay. Here we go. Let's get back to the show. I'm telling you, this is going to be interesting. We're going to get through this together part of our journey. We have to take these issues on. It's all part of our journey. Where am I? I'm all lost. (laughs) Here's what we have in store. First, I'm going to set up the context of, did I say that already? (laughs) Oh, man. Going to be one of these types of shows. It's 3.30 in the morning. What can I say? I got up. I got up loaded for bear. Somebody emailed me the other day and said, you said the other day you were shooting fish in a barrel. Is that what kids in the Midwest did? (laughs) No, not exactly. We got into a lot of scrapes. There were a lot of guns, way too many guns around for little kids shooting at things. So bored. Just so bored. Never actually literally shot fish in a barrel. (laughs) A lot of fish around, too. Caught fish, shot things, did not shoot fish in a barrel. Okay, that's today's show. Then next week, we'll transform this from the world of nonfiction to the world of art. 
Mike Palindrome will join us on Monday to talk about Faulkner's story, A Rose for Emily. We'll hear that story and hear Faulkner's greatness. We'll give that a full airing. We'll look past the politics, or maybe I should say, we'll situate the politics within the art. Give it a context. Then on Thursday, we'll have a response of sorts, not in a, an official or formal way, but we'll listen to James Baldwin's story, Going to Meet the Man, another brilliant story, also set in the South, and we'll talk about the differences. You'll hear those differences for yourself. So that's our project. See how this works? Baldwin and Faulkner today with a Baldwin essay. Faulkner next week. Baldwin next week. We are giving all the artists and all of their works a full hearing, shall we say. So let's take a quick break. Come back with an email from listener Jason and then dig into this fascinating topic that still resonates today. This debate between Faulkner and Baldwin, which played out in the magazine pages in America in the 1950s. It's like those two were ringing a giant bell or two giant bells. They each had one and the reverberations still travel right through our chest. We'll get closer to those bells, hear them more clearly after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Here's the email subject. Thank you especially for the Shakespeare episode during the lockdown. Greetings, Jack. This is from Jason, by the way. Greetings, Jack. I hope this email finds you safe and well with your family. Thanks so much for the Shakespeare's Greatest Lines episode. 
I'm in the middle of listening to it, but I'm about to interrupt listening to go to the grocery store and get some groceries for my family, which is now like a game of human Pac-Man. But I thought I would take a moment to first send out a note of thanks. Your podcast reminds me of all the times that I encountered Shakespeare with my dad. Starting at the age of nine, he took me once a year to the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario, Canada. What a great dad. The first play I saw was Henry IV, Part One. One of the most memorable performances was of Measure for Measure, which was guest-directed by the great director Peter Bogdanovich. He said it in Weimar, Germany in the 1930s. In the opening scene, there was a cabaret set up on stage, and the female and female impersonating actors walked into the audience and selected men and women and brought them up onto the stage to dance in the cabaret club. I was watching the performance with two of my great-aunts, one of whom had recently left a nunnery, <laughs> and also had obtained a doctorate in English. What a great-great-aunt. As you can imagine, she did not enjoy the performance at all. Hmm. I recently helped my oldest son with his Shakespeare homework, which was to read and interpret passages from Romeo and Juliet. He is a good reader, which I am very proud of. However, he stated that he really did not like Romeo and Juliet because it was, quote, cringe. You and Mike did a great job, and it really pierced the relentless drabness of the lockdown situation today. I also really enjoyed the Calvino story. Maybe an episode on Shakespeare's greatest insults? Be well, and keep up this important work. Best, Jason. Oh, Jason, Jason, Jason. Thank you for the email. Shakespeare's greatest insults would be a fun one. That goes on our list. The Stratford Festival. Speaking of fun ones, I have very good memories of that festival. I went with my wife when she was pregnant with our first child in the early months when it was exciting and not yet too uncomfortable. We stayed a couple of nights there and saw something like five plays in two and a half days. Shakespeare, Cole Porter, Michael Frayne. We stayed in a bed and breakfast and bought a teapot there. I remember that. That's the kind of place Stratford is. The kind of place where a nice woman runs the B&B &B and sells teapots in the lobby. So we bought, I think we bought two. One for a gift and one for us. The town has... <laughs> We're not teapot-buying people, ordinarily. The town was infectious. It has this great camaraderie. The spirit of enjoying the theater is really fantastic. Everyone should go. You encounter someone at a restaurant or at the B&B, &B, and you don't say, nice weather we're having, or can you believe the traffic? You say, what have you seen? What do you have tickets for? What are you planning to go to? What do you recommend? Everyone talks about the plays. Oh, it's good. It's so good. You should go, listener, when you can. It's a great spirit. It's like a reminder that we can be better and things can get better. They don't have to be so gloomy all the time. We can connect. So they're on hold this summer due to coronavirus, but in 2021, they'll hopefully reopen all safe and ready to go. And what better way to celebrate the vaccine or wherever we are at that point than by taking a weekend or a week or a fortnight, going to a theater festival and celebrating the experience. Jason, thank you for the email. All right. 
Let's take one more quick break and then come back. More about Baldwin. More about Faulkner. More about debates inside and outside of literature. As I'm preparing for this show, there was an astonishing photo on the internet that I just cannot get out of my mind. Police officers in masks for the quarantine, protecting the Capitol building in Michigan, the state capitol, where the governor and the legislature work. A few dozen people showed up angry, wearing camouflage and carrying carrying long guns. They want to work. They want the quarantine to end. They want this for themselves, but also for the whole state. Never mind the science. Never mind the polling. It shows that something like 75% of Michigan agree with the governor that the quarantine should not end. Never mind that the White House published a set of guidance for when states should lift the quarantine, and it includes things like showing 14 days of reduced coronavirus positive tests, And those benchmarks haven't been met. The people were angry. And they had big guns and they demanded to be let in. And one of my friends on Facebook posted the picture of this man, not wearing a mask, shouting, screaming, his face inches away from the police officers who have to stand there to block him from entering. And my friend on Facebook, old high school friend, not too political, just a guy, he wrote one word above this picture. Privilege. That's what we're talking about here. Privilege. Privilege above all else. The feeling that you don't need to wait. You don't need to cooperate. You don't need to share. You don't need to work through your representative democracy. You strap on your weapons and take because you want. Now, maybe that sounds dreamy to you. Maybe you defend them. Maybe you say, hey, we or they deserve it. We earned it. Our guns entitle us to it. We're freedom fighters, etc., etc. I don't know what arguments people make to defend this, really. It's kind of a fever swamp to me. That's how it looks from the outside. A lot of self-deception. Let's look at it this way. There's a test you can make of this. You know this test, the original position? The philosopher John Rawls called it that. But we can just use common sense to describe it. You think of a proposed law or rule or norm or situation, and you imagine that you do not know which position you will be in. Now you ask yourself, will you be fine with the law? Let's say there's a law that says everyone with red hair is forced to give all their money to people with black hair. Now, if you have black hair, you might consider that law very thoughtfully. (laughs) You might say, hmm... Might be better for the economy if we did that. Might be better just for me. Sounds pretty good, right? What do you care about those gingers? They'll manage somehow. But in the original position, you have to decide whether you like that law, not knowing 
if you will be in the position of having red hair or black hair, you might be one of the ones who gets singled out, told to turn over all your money. Do you still support the law? I don't think so. Now, imagine you're in the original position. You're neutral. You're nobody yet. It's 1950. A group of people, thousands of people, millions of people are living as second-class citizens. It's harder to vote. It's harder to get educated. It's harder to live. They live in fear of the majority who control the courts, the police, the state government. Now, do you like that setup? Sure. For the majority, maybe you do. Maybe that seems natural. Maybe it seems right. Maybe it seems God-given. Seems advantageous. But if you have to agree to it in advance and you don't know what color your skin is going to be, let's say you're in heaven, you're a colorless soul, and you're about to be reincarnated as a person. You don't yet know if you'll be placed into a white body or a black body. You're coming down as a baby, innocent little babe. Are you in favor of the system that's in place? Do you say yes, even though there's a strong chance, a coin flip? In Mississippi in 1950, the non-white population was 45%. Half the people, almost. Are you going to count on a coin toss? Do you want to toss a coin to decide whether you'll live in heaven or hell? No. You would want fairness. You'd want justice. You'll want to live in a society that isn't marked by prejudice and hate. Right? Are you with me? God, I hope so. Even my reviewer says, I'm preaching to the choir. I hope you're in this choir, at least. I hope I haven't lost anyone so far. So let's take things out of the hypothetical. And in the world of post-World War II America, the civil rights movement is prominent. William Faulkner is in his 50s. He spent a lifetime in this world, living among the privileged whites who came out of the Civil War, the next few generations. He has his views of black people that he reveals now and then in personal letters, and it's not great, frankly. He's a product of his era, you could say. They're cringeworthy when we read them now. But he's a novelist in pursuit of the truth, too, in pursuit of empathy. And he has enough vision and enough breadth of intelligence to see hypocrisy and morally flawed arguments, too. That's what's interesting about Faulkner. He's not an unreconstructed racist. He's kind of kind of a helpless one. He gets it. Here come the James Baldwins of the world who criticize the Jim Crow South and who look at Faulkner, who's the great novelist of that region for that time, highly lauded, headed for the Nobel Prize, which he did win. And they say, well, where do you stand, Mr. Faulkner? And Emmett Till happens. You know Emmett Till, right? A 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. Lynched. And people say, this has to change. We have to change this. This cannot be our America. Enough is enough. The principles of America have to mean something. What say you, Mr. Faulkner? What say you, great novelist, who lives in this region of prejudice and hate, this hotbed? And I should say, 
The North wasn't great, frankly. They weren't great either. But the South was the flashpoint. The South was where it was all coming to a head. They say, Mr. Faulkner, great novelist who makes your living and builds your reputation on being an artist, a novelist, a thinker. It's not to say he has to be political. He doesn't have to pick a candidate. He doesn't have to be involved in issues. But these are core human issues. He's writing about society. He is a thinker, an explainer, a diver into hearts and minds and souls. That's his project. Well, can you explain this, Mr. Faulkner? Can you justify it? You're writing about this society. You're praised for your powers of observation and your insight. Where are you on this? Are you taking a stand? What are we supposed to think? That's what people look to novelists for, right? What are we, where, what does this mean for us as humans? Now, Faulkner could say, my art is doing the talking, or read my novels, the answers are in there. You can make an argument that the humanity comes through the novels, and that great works of art have to be complicated, not unsubtle, not preachy, not didactic, that you can't turn a novel into a cartoon with mustache-twirling villains and good guys riding white horses. Or in this case, just because you think the South is unfair... Like I said, the North wasn't perfect either. Let's not forget that. And let's not act like 2020 is perfect. These are all tough issues and stubborn to resolve. They have been with us a long time. They don't look like they're ending anytime soon. But let's say you think there's a problem with white Southerners and the way they treat black people in 1950. That doesn't mean you need to have novels full of heroic black characters with no flaws and villainous white characters who are only evil. Some books can pull that off. Most great books can't. Most great books have characters who are richer than that, who are more in between, who give us a deeper and more complex view. You could say that's what Faulkner was doing, and judge the merits of his books, and let the chips fall where they may. And that's mostly how he's been read. That's why I'm wading into this topic. He's been given the benefit of the doubt most of the time, and he's also been dismissed, rejected by some groups. That doesn't seem right to me, to have those two extremes. We need to find out, for those of us who are trying to figure out what we can from literature, we need to dig a little deeper, don't we? And Faulkner didn't stop with his novels, by the way. He wrote an article in Life magazine, which had a huge circulation at the time. It dwarfed his novels. Millions of people were reading Life magazine. A few thousand people were reading his books. More people listening to this podcast episode, probably, than read any of his novels at that time in his day. So, he writes in Life magazine did have a huge circulation, had the attention of the country. And he's talking to civil rights advocates. And his article says, go slow. Go slow now. Go slow. His argument that the civil rights movement will make white people so angry, they'll get violent. 
That's the argument. Go slow. I know these people. You're going to make them start lynching. It's an untenable position morally, which Faulkner recognized. Faulkner said, I'm not making a moral argument. I'm making a practical argument. And then he himself doubled down further. He gave an interview where he said, quote, But I don't like enforced integration any more than I like enforced segregation. If I have to choose between the United States government and Mississippi, then I'll choose Mississippi. What I'm trying to do now is not have to make that decision. As long as there's a middle road, all right. I'll be on it. But if it came to fighting... End quote. Later he said he was drunk during that interview. Sure. <laughs> Mel Gibson was drunk too. You know what? I've been drunk. I don't invent bad things to say that I don't actually think. You might lower your inhibitions and say things you otherwise wouldn't. Say things you know you shouldn't. But there's still things that you think, right? This doesn't just come from nowhere. So, go slow, Faulkner says. Yes, it's the right thing to do. Integrate eventually, but not now. Because right now, white people in the South are a big powder keg and they'll go crazy. You'll have anger and violence. Do you recognize that argument? It's the argument of a family living with an abuser in the household. Don't anger him. Things will get worse. W.E.B. Du Bois challenged Faulkner to a debate on the subject of the federal government and going slow on integration. He said, let's have a debate and let's have it on the steps of the courthouse where an all-white jury found Emmett Till's murderer innocent. We take a pause here and talk about juries, pressure valves. I have some thoughts on, well, actually, let's save that for another day because we want to get this out of the world of social commentary and into the world of fiction. But first... We have to finish up where we are with Faulkner. And I have to explain why this is important. You might be thinking, this is politics. What does it have to do with fiction? Can't a novelist write novels without being political? Aren't novels better when they're not political? Can't you just leave this alone, Jack? (laughs) Stop marring your podcast with politics. Isn't it fair to say that Michael... Are you all watching the Michael Jordan documentary? He's criticized by some for not taking a stand, for not being more of a community leader. And some might say that makes LeBron James a better basketball player. Give him the nod. He's done more for communities. He wasn't just about making money, about selling shoes. Of course, we're not judging a basketball player for their off-the-court stances. We might judge LeBron a better person or a better role model or more admirable, even better for the game although that's kind of arguable. But the greatness of an athlete can be confined to greatness on the court. We're not judging celebrity impact or anything like that. We could say we wish Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan were more like Muhammad Ali, who stood for something, who showed some courage, tried to make our society better. That can make Ali our favorite athlete. But you can also judge athletic greatness purely on athleticism, as I do. Novelists are a little different. If Faulkner was writing poems about flowers and angels and the smell of the trees in the summer, then fine. Strip out the politics. But he's writing sprawling novels 
situated in the South. He has mayors and judges and town leaders and blacks and whites and schools and ancestors, his generations, history. He's writing about a society, a culture, and we can set aside his political views and just look at the art, but we can't pretend that the art doesn't have politics in it. And by politics here, I don't mean a a particular bill or a particular politician. I don't mean a microscopic look at a particular issue. I mean the whole overall structure, the power, who holds it, how they exercise it, and what it really does to them. How do they treat people? What is really in their hearts? What is really in their souls? And if they're deceiving themselves, if they're shutting out the truth, if they're living a lie, then let's dig in. Let's excavate what's going on. Let's see it. Let's try to see it for what's real so we can figure out what's important to us and if it matters to us. And if we can learn anything, if we can take anything from it at all. So what happened? Back then, when Mr. Du Bois challenged Faulkner, Faulkner telegrammed back, declining his challenge. Really shows where Faulkner was on this. He declares in the telegram that he and Du Bois already both agree, quote, in advance that the position Du Bois will take is right morally, legally, and ethically. Right? Du Bois is in favor of integration having black kids and black and white kids go to school in the same place. Faulkner says, yes, I'll agree with you in advance that you are right morally, legal, and ethically. But if you will not agree that the position I take in asking for moderation and patience is right practically, then we will both waste our breath in debate. That's Faulkner's position says, you're right morally, legally, and ethically. I'm right practically. Why is that? Is it because blacks aren't ready? They're not deserving? No. It's because the whites will not allow it. They'll go crazy and they'll go violent. That's Faulkner's position. It's practical to be quiet around an abuser. Tiptoe, whisper, don't rile him up. So, that's where we are. Now, that's you could take Faulkner's side. That's fine. That's fine with me if you take his side. You might say it's practical. You might go for that. You might not. I'm trying to just point out what the sides were. That's where we are. Let's hear Baldwin now. See what you think of his essay. This is interesting. When Mr. Baldwin arrives on the scene, it's called Faulkner and Desegregation, and it was published in the fall of 1956 in the Partisan Review. It's about five pages long. And then next week, we'll tackle this specifically in the realm of art. Of short stories. We'll hear one of Faulkner's greatest short stories and we'll see how that works. 
Mike Palindrome will be here for that one. And then that'll be Monday. And then on Thursday, we'll hear one of Baldwin's short stories and we'll see how that works. And you can decide for yourself how do these men, these artists, these people of literature approach these issues? What are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? What effect do these stories have on us? How is literature working? James Baldwin's essay, Faulkner and Desegregation, after this. Faulkner and Desegregation Any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it, the loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. And at such a moment, unable to see and not daring to imagine what the future will now bring forth, one clings to what one knew or thought one knew, to what one possessed or dreamed that one possessed. Yet it is only when a man is able, without bitterness or self-pity, to surrender a dream he has long cherished, or a privilege he has long possessed, that he is set free. He has set himself free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. All men have gone through this, go through it, each according to his degree throughout their lives. It is one of the irreducible facts of life. And remembering this, especially since I am a Negro, affords me almost my only means of understanding what is happening in the minds and hearts of white Southerners today. For the arguments with which the bulk of relatively articulate white Southerners of goodwill have met the necessity of desegregation have no value whatever as arguments, being almost entirely and helplessly dishonest, when not, indeed, insane. After more than 200 years in slavery and 90 years of quasi-freedom, it is hard to think very highly of William Faulkner's advice to, quote, go slow. They don't mean go slow, Thurgood Marshall is reported to have said. They mean don't go. Nor is the squire of Oxford very persuasive when he suggests that white Southerners, left to their own devices, will realize that their own social structure looks silly to the rest of the world and corrected of their own accord. It has looked silly, to use Faulkner's rather strange adjective, for a long time. So far from trying to correct it, Southerners, who seem to be characterized by a species of defiance most perverse, when it is most despairing, have clung to it, at incalculable cost to themselves, as the only conceivable, and as an absolutely sacrosanct way of life. They have never seriously conceded that their social structure was mad. They have insisted, on the contrary, that everyone who criticized it was mad. Faulkner goes further. He concedes the madness and moral wrongness of the South, but at the same time he raises it to the level of a mystique, which makes it somehow unjust to discuss Southern society in the same terms in which one would discuss any other society. Quote, our position is wrong and untenable, says Faulkner, but it is not wise to keep an emotional people off balance, end quote. This, if it means anything, can only mean that this emotional people have been swept off balance 
by the pressure of recent events, that is, the Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation. When the pressure is taken off, and not an instant before, this emotional people will presumably find themselves once again on balance, and will then be able to free themselves of an, quote, obsolescence in their own land, end quote, in their own way, and of course, in their own time. The question left begging is what, in their history to date, affords any evidence that they have any desire or capacity to do this. And it is, I suppose, impertinent to ask just what Negroes are supposed to do while the South works out what, in Faulkner's rhetoric, becomes something very closely resembling a high and noble tragedy. Let me pause here and explain that there was a debate going on. Baldwin's about to touch upon. Faulkner had pitted the NAACP against the Citizens' Council, which was a, an association of racist white groups that had been opposed to integration. Baldwin says, The sad truth is that whatever modifications have been effected in the social structure of the South since the Reconstruction and any alleviations of the Negro's lot within it are due to great and incessant pressure, very little of it indeed from within the South, that the North has been guilty of pharaicism in dealing with the South does not negate the fact that much of this pressure has come from the North, that some, not nearly as many as Faulkner would like to believe Southern Negroes prefer or are afraid of changing the status quo, does not negate the fact that it is the Southern Negro himself who, year upon year and generation upon generation, has kept the southern waters troubled. As far as the Negro's life in the South is concerned, the NAACP is the only organization which has struggled with admirable single-mindedness and skill to raise him to the level of a citizen. For this reason alone, and quite apart from the individual heroism of many of its southern members, it cannot be equated as Faulkner equates it, with the pathological Citizens' Council. One organization is working within the law, and the other is working against and outside it. Faulkner's threat to leave the middle of the road, where he has, presumably all these years, been working for the benefit of Negroes, reduces itself to a more or less up-to-date version of the Southern threat to secede from the Union. Faulkner among so many others, is so plaintive concerning this middle of the road from which extremist elements of both races are driving him that it does not seem unfair to ask just what he has been doing there until now. Where is the evidence of the struggle he has been carrying on there on behalf of the Negro? Why, if he and his enlightened confrères in the South have been boring from within to destroy segregation, do they react with such panic when the walls show any signs of falling? Why and how does one move from the middle of the road where one was aiding Negroes into the streets to shoot them? Now it is easy enough to state flatly that Faulkner's middle of the road does not, cannot exist, and that he is guilty of great emotional and intellectual dishonesty in pretending that it does. I think this is why he clings to his fantasy. It is easy enough to accuse him of hypocrisy when he speaks of man being, quote, indestructible because of his simple will to freedom, end quote. But he is not being hypocritical. He means it. It is only that man is one thing, a rather 
unlucky abstraction in this case, and the Negroes he has always known, so fatally tied up in his mind with his grandfather's slaves, are quite another. He is at his best, and is perfectly sincere when he declares in Harper's, quote, To live anywhere in the world today and be against equality because of race or color is like living in Alaska and being against snow. We have already got snow. And as with the Alaskan, merely to live in armistice with it is not enough. Like the Alaskan, we had better use it. End quote. And though this seems to be flatly opposed to his statement in an interview printed in The Reporter, that if it came to a contest between the federal government and Mississippi, he would fight for Mississippi, quote, even if it meant going out into the streets and shooting Negroes, end quote. He means that too. Faulkner means everything he says, means them all at once, and with very nearly the same intensity. This is why his statements demand our attention. He has perhaps never before more concretely expressed what it means to be a Southerner. What seems to define the Southerner, in his own mind at any rate, is his relationship to the North, that is, to the rest of the Republic, a relationship which can at the very best be described as uneasy. It is apparently very difficult to be at once a Southerner and an American, so difficult that many of the South's most independent minds are forced into the American exile which is not, of course, without its aggravating, circular effect on the interior and public life of the South. A Bostonian, say, who leaves Boston, is not regarded by the citizenry he has abandoned with the same venomous distrust as is the Southerner who leaves the South. The citizenry of Boston do not consider that they have been abandoned, much less betrayed. It is only the American Southerner who seems to be fighting in his own entrails, a peculiar, ghastly, and perpetual war with all the rest of the country. Didn't you say, demanded a southern woman of Robert Penn Warren, that you was born down here, used to live right near here? And when he agreed that this was so, yes, but you never said where you living now. The difficulty, perhaps, is that the Southerner clings to two entirely antithetical doctrines, two legends, two histories. Like all other Americans, he must subscribe and is to some extent controlled by the beliefs and the principles expressed in the Constitution. At the same time, these beliefs and principles seem determined to destroy the South. He is, on the one hand, the proud citizen of a free society, and, on the other, is committed to a society which has not yet dared to free itself of the necessity of naked and brutal oppression. He is part of a country which boasts that it has never lost a war, but he is also the representative of a conquered nation. I have not seen a single statement of Faulkner's concerning desegregation which does not inform us that his family has lived in the same part of Mississippi for generations, that his great-grandfather owned slaves, and that his ancestors fought and died in the Civil War. And so compelling is this image of ruin, gallantry, and death thus evoked that it demands a positive effort of the imagination to remember that slaveholding Southerners were not the only people who perished in that war. Negroes and Northerners were also blown to bits. American history, as opposed to Southern history, proves that Southerners were not the only slaveholders, Negroes were not even the only slaves. 
and the segregation which Faulkner sanctifies by references to Shiloh, Chickamauga, and Gettysburg, does not extend back that far, is, in fact, scarcely as old as the century. The racial condition, which Faulkner will not have changed by, quote, mere force of law or economic threat, end quote, was imposed by precisely these means. The Southern tradition, which is, after all, all that Faulkner is talking about, is not a tradition at all. When Faulkner evokes it, he is simply evoking a legend which contains an accusation, and that accusation, stated far more simply than it should be, is that the North, in winning the war, left the South only one means of asserting its identity, and that means was the Negro. Quote, My people own slaves, says Faulkner, and the very obligation we have to take care of these people is morally bad. This problem is far beyond the moral one it is and still was a hundred years ago, in 1860, when many Southerners, including Robert Lee, recognized it as a moral one at the very instant they in turn elected to champion the underdog, because that underdog was blood and kin and home, end quote. But the North escaped scot-free. For one thing, in freeing the slave, it established a moral superiority over the South, which the South has not learned to live with until today. And this, despite, or possibly because of, the fact that this moral superiority was bought, after all, rather cheaply. The North was no better prepared than the South, as it turned out, to make citizens of former slaves. But it was able, as the South was not, to wash its hands of the matter. Men who knew that slavery was wrong were forced, nevertheless, to fight to perpetuate it, because they were unable to turn against, quote, blood and kin and home, end quote. And when blood and kin and home were defeated, they found themselves, more than ever, committed. Committed, in effect, to a way of life which was as unjust and crippling as it was inescapable. In some, the North, by freeing the slaves of their masters, robbed the masters of any possibility of freeing themselves of the slaves. When Faulkner speaks, then, of the middle of the road, he is simply speaking of the hope, which was always unrealistic and is now all but smashed, that the white Southerner, with no coercion from the rest of the nation, will lift himself above his ancient crippling bitterness and refuse to add to his already intolerable burden of blood-guiltiness. But this hope would seem to be absolutely dependent on a social and psychological stasis, which simply does not exist. Quote, Things have been getting better, Faulkner tells us, for a long time. Only six Negroes were killed by whites in Mississippi last year, according to police figures. End quote. Faulkner surely knows how little consolation this offers a Negro, and he also knows something about police figures in the Deep South. And he knows, too, that murder is not the worst thing that can happen to a man, black or white, but murder may be the worst thing a man can do. Faulkner is not trying to save Negroes who are, in his view, already saved, who, having refused to be destroyed by terror, are far stronger than the terrified white populace, and who have, moreover, fatally, from his point of view, the weight of the federal government behind them. He is trying to save, quote, whatever good remains in those white people, end quote. 
The time he pleads for is the time in which the Southerner will come to terms with himself, will cease fleeing from his conscience, and achieve, in the words of Robert Penn Warren, quote, moral identity, end quote. And he surely believes, with Warren, that, quote, then in a country where moral identity is hard to come by, the South, because it has had to deal concretely with a moral problem, may offer some leadership, and we need any we can get. If we are to break out of the national rhythm, the rhythm between complacency and panic, end quote. But the time Faulkner asked for does not exist, and he is not the only Southerner who knows it. There is never a time in the future in which we will work out our salvation. The challenge is in the moment. The time is always now. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Some stage setting. Next week should be fun. Mike Palindrome will be here to talk about Faulkner and his story, A Rose for Emily. A beautiful story, haunting, unforgettable. And then we'll travel to the world of James Baldwin, the furious mind, the anger, and the righteous fury of Baldwin in his short story, Going to Meet the Man. That story is incredible, too. Two great Great works of fiction, all in store for you next week. Get ready! <laughs> this will be a breathtaking ride. My thanks to Jason for his email. Let's hope we all get back to live theater soon. I'm sorry we didn't get to my story about juries and pressure valves. I'll have to get to that later. Plenty of stuff coming up on the history of literature. After we do the heat of the 1950s, we'll go straight into the world... Well, it's going to be the 1950s, actually. I think so. It's the world of Ontario and Canada and Alice Munro. We're going to cool ourselves off. Except maybe we won't be too cool. It's one of her stories about death and murder and the way a small town deals with that. It's one of her long, novel-like stories, and we're covering it in three parts. Then we move into Thoreau and Boccaccio, and Fanny Burney is on the calendar. <laughs> Ever read her? that'll be fun all these great names popping up Harlan Ellison might get his turn and Stendhal too ah our journey is long and fascinating dear listeners I hope you are enjoying the ride I'm Jack Wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time Thank you.